Let's pray together. God, we do worship you. You are the giver of life and you are the one true God. And we thank you that you sent your son to be crucified, to suffer and die and to rise again on the third day so that we might be redeemed out of slavery to sin and darkness and hopelessness and despair. And we thank you that your son set an example for us in suffering so that as we live a life that is also filled with suffering, that we might have hope as we look to him. God, we do give you thanks for this space, but we thank you that your spirit is not contained in spaces, but that you have sent your spirit to dwell in our hearts. And we are humbled by that. And we give you praise for that. And we thank you for the hope that it brings us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look at your word, that we would be encouraged, that we would be inspired to love you and worship you. Lord, I pray for those in this room who are going through trials and sufferings of different kinds, that you would especially minister to them as we look at this text from 1 Peter today. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm going to ask you to open your Bible with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, um, we have some folks that are available and willing to bring you one of ours. And we would love for you to have one of our Bibles. You can keep it. You can always look it up on your phone as well. Um, But again, when we gather, we want to gather and look at God's word together. I don't really have wisdom to offer you, but we believe that the scriptures do. So 1 Peter chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 17 through 19. The apostle Peter writes, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So last week we talked about suffering and trials, and today we're going to continue that theme as we close out chapter 4 of Peter's letter here. The big idea as we conclude this chapter, I think, is found right there in verse 19. So take a look at it one more time. Peter wants us to entrust our souls to our faithful God and creator as we go through suffering in this life. And being a Christian ultimately really means simply that you trust God. You trust him in everything. You trust him with your daily choices. You trust him with the suffering you go through. You trust him for strength in your weakness. You trust him for forgiveness in your failures and your sins. You trust him with the relationships that you have with other people. You trust him with the finances that he graciously provides you with. You trust him with your life right now and also with your life into eternity. You trust that if you obey the things that God has taught in his word as he has revealed them, that he will take 
good care of you, even in the difficulties that you go through. So to be a Christian means that you trust Jesus. You trust him with all your heart, with all your life, with all your mind, with all your soul, no matter how things might unfold as you walk through the different trials and struggles of this life, you trust God. And this brings us to our first verse there, verse 17. Peter says, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, if we consider the wider context of what Peter has been dealing with in 1 Peter chapter 4 here, you know, back in verses 12 and following, everything we talked about last week, suffering and trials, then I don't think that this word judgment has a, a connotation here that has to deal with some kind of courtroom trial, okay? This is not that kind of judgment. Rather, I think what Peter means by judgment here is a continuation of the testing that he has been talking about in this chapter. In other words, the judgment here is referring to an evaluation that we're currently going through. And eventually that evaluation will lead to a verdict at the end of all things. Eventually we'll get to the outcome. He uses that word here in verse 17. But right now, we're still in the fiery trial that Peter has been discussing for the last several verses. This is our evaluation, the judgment of testing that we are currently going through. So to make a judgment is to make some kind of assessment, right? When people say, don't judge me, what they're saying is, don't apply some kind of evaluation to my life. And currently, God is assessing our lives as we persevere through the different trials that come our way, the hardships that he brings to test our faith. So I would say that what we're being taught here is that the testing that we go through in our lives as Christians is either driving us closer to the heart of Jesus or it will ultimately drive us further away from God, our creator. Proving ultimately in the end, if we go that way, that we don't trust him because the trial sent us away from him. And if we're honest, sometimes the trials that God puts us through are really intensely difficult, aren't they? Sometimes they're really crushing things. I mean, the judgment of God that Peter is speaking about here that is this assessment of the state of our hearts in trust towards God That's a really weighty, weighty thing. I heard two stories this week about two different pastors, and these are both true stories. I'm not just making them up to make an illustration. The first story was about a pastor whose wife was seriously injured in an accident. And as a result of that accident, she spent a very, very long year in recovery, slowly getting better. And at the end of that year, when she was finally pretty much fully recovered, she suddenly died from a totally unrelated, unexpected issue, probably a brain aneurysm. And it was a horrible tragedy, right? That turned out ultimately to be so devastating to her husband, the pastor, that he lost his faith in God and eventually chose to end his own life because he was so full of despair and hopelessness. And can you imagine... Can you imagine going through a long year of suffering 
seeing some hopeful progress, getting your hopes up that things would turn the corner and get better, only to have your wife tragically die unexpectedly at the end of that. And it just doesn't make sense, right? When you hear a story like that, you're like, how can there be meaning behind something like that? But rather than pass the test of his suffering, this man, who was supposed to be an example of faith, instead turned away from God in despair. And I don't presume to know the state of his soul when he made the decision to ultimately take his own life and commit suicide, but that seems to me to be a pretty deep indicator that he was not walking through this trial in faith, trusting God, but instead he chose to turn away because the suffering broke him. The other story was just a tweet that I came across this week from a pastor, and he told another tragic story that he had just received a phone call from the police department in the city where his son was living, that they had found his young son dead in his apartment from a drug overdose. And here's a pastor that presumably raised his son to trust in God and to place his faith in God. And his son instead chose to go a wayward direction, giving himself over to drugs and a path that ultimately took his life. But you know what the pastor said at the end of telling the story? He said, God is good. Again, can you imagine that? Saying immediately after receiving a phone call that your son had had his life stolen from him by a drug overdose. Saying in response to that, God is good. And this pastor is proving himself to pass the test, the fiery trial that he is walking through by placing his confidence in God in the midst of the suffering that he is experiencing. He's not cursing God. He's not giving up his hope in the goodness of God. But in the face of his pain, he is courageously declaring, God is good, which is true. That's a true statement. And this is what testing and trials do. They are an evaluation, a judgment that provide a conclusion about the kind of people that we really are in our faith and our trust for God. And the final verdict is yet to come. It will be declared on the last day when we stand at that final judgment. But the evaluation is now. You are in it today and tomorrow. And as long as God gives you the grace to live. And so what's being proven in the trials and the suffering that we go through well, whether we actually trust God in this life now so that we are prepared to trust him and be with him forever in eternity. The trials that we're going through right now, I would say are a little bit like hell week for the Navy SEALs. Do you know anything about the process of being accepted into the Navy SEAL program on Coronado Island in San Diego? A group of men, at least the last I heard it was still only men, but they're brought to this facility in San Diego and over a week of intense trials, they are brought to the very edge of themselves. They are brought to the very limit of human endurance. The most intense testing that you could imagine with a week of sleepless nights, sometimes over the week, only a couple of hours total, 
physical exhaustion, mental abuse, pain and anguish. And if over the course of a week they can endure the sheer suffering of those trials and affliction, then they pass the test and they prove themselves worthy to be accepted into one of the most elite fighting forces the world has ever known. And honestly, some of the fiery trials that God puts us through sound a lot like that, don't they? Sleepless nights and physical exhaustion and mental anguish and spiritual darkness, heartfelt pain and sorrow, sometimes just crushing anxiety and uncertainty and fear and loneliness. Anybody experienced seasons like that in your life? And anybody going through a season like that, I think inevitably gets to this point where they ask the question, why, why, why in the world do I have to experience this? And Peter says, because it's time for the evaluation, the judgment to begin at the household of God. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 3 tells us the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. And so where will you place your faith and your hope in the crucible of hardship and suffering when God chooses to test your heart? Where will you find hope? What will you cling to? Well, the trial ultimately will reveal the answer. Like it says in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to pass the test. So what will God find as he brings you through this assessment of judgment that all of us must go through in our life? Will the evaluation that suffering proves reveal ultimately that you don't have a sincere profession of faith, that you are a false believer, merely a Christian by name, but not by truth in your heart? Will it reveal doubt that swallows your confidence in the goodness of God? Or will it reveal maybe secret sin that you've hidden from people? but that in fact does rule over your heart instead of Christ being your Lord? Will the fiery testing that God brings into your life prove that you're just a Sunday Christian? You just go to church every now and then when it's convenient to wake up and do so because you want to think of yourself as a good person. And by going to church, you can keep up that charade. Will the judgment of trials bring hardship that reveals deep down where nobody but God can see that actually... You put on a good show, but you are rotten to the core. And you don't have a heart that is fully committed to this God who would bring you through suffering. Or will the suffering prove you only love this God when he brings blessing and comfort and kindness to you? That you think you actually deserve from him a soft life, an easy life, because you are a good person. You're self-righteous. That's what you deserve. Or will the test reveal as you suffer that what 
flows forth from your heart is that exclamation in the midst of suffering, God is good. Like Job cries out in his suffering, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job goes on to say, shall we expect only goodness from God and not also the hardship and the pain and the adversity? In your trials, will your heart cry out, Jesus suffered everything for me. What could I possibly hold from him? What small thing would I be willing to give up in light of this great thing that he has done for me? And this is the test, my friends. This is the judgment. This is the trial that begins here with us. Our lives each and every day are a part of it in some way. To see whether we will place our trust in God, even when we don't feel his nearness to us or we don't feel his goodness to us. And Peter says the judgment begins with the household of God. Why? Why must it begin with us when there's a world out there that doesn't even believe in this God? Well, the reason it begins with us is because it really began with Christ who came before us. The judgment began with Jesus and he passed that test. And he has set an example for us. He walked through the fiery trial. He kept his faith in God in the midst of his difficulty. And now the trial that he went through is passed to us who would choose to follow in his footsteps so that we might be judged worthy in the way that we respond to the trials as we follow after him. And eventually that judgment will come in the final way to all people. No one will escape it. And Jesus will recognize those of us who belong to him, who suffered well like he has suffered and who trusted him in the face of that. And he will cast out and reject all those who thought that they could do it on their own. And he will say, have at it. You can do it apart from me, so be it. For those who do not obey the gospel of God, there will only be ultimately then weeping and gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness of total despair but for those who do obey the gospel of God, there will be glory and honor and peace and immortality forever. And I want you to see here specifically what Peter says we must obey through the trial of judgment. I think he uses some really interesting language here. He speaks of not obeying a whole bunch of commandments. Do you notice this? He says, he talks about obeying the gospel of God. I think that's an interesting thing for him to say at the end of verse 17. What does it mean? I think Peter is emphasizing that we must place our trust in the gospel itself in the midst of our trials. Okay, you might be like, okay, well, that's obvious. Let's think a minute for, let's think for a minute about what the gospel is. When Jesus came and he began his ministry, he proclaimed the gospel. And what he proclaimed was, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is here. And so in talking about obeying the gospel of God, I think once again, Peter is highlighting, just using different language, the importance of trust. To repent means that you're done trusting your own way. You've seen that it produces no life, no fruit, no hope. 
your own efforts and your own devices only lead you further into misery and ruin. And so you turn away from that sin and that selfishness and instead you turn to Jesus Christ and you believe not just an idea, you trust in him. You trust that in turning to him, you step into the kingdom of God where he rules and reigns over all things, even now in this life, even when all around you seems hardship and suffering. To obey the gospel of God is to be fully convinced that even in the trials of this life, as hard as they may be, God is good. God is good. You trust him. Even though you don't know how it's going to work out, you feel like you're stumbling blind through life, but you obey the gospel, you repent and you believe, you trust. To obey the gospel of God, I would say, is to come to Jesus and say, since you gave your life for me, I believe that you love me and that you will take good care of me. And so I give my life to you, even though I don't see how it all makes sense. I don't have answers to the questions that I'm asking right now but I trust you. And I believe my life is better surrendered to you than kept to myself. Whatever trial you have for me, I will hold fast to you because I know, I know that you love me. And I admit, disobedience to faith or disobedience of faith is sometimes difficult, right? And I think even Peter admits that it's hard. I think he says it right here. In verse 18, he says, If the righteous is scarcely saved, then what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Well, I already said the ungodly and the sinner will ultimately be destroyed because they turn away from God. They are fools and they will perish in their own self-sufficiency away from him. They will fail the test of this life by not turning to God in trust and they will be condemned at the judgment because they refused to give themselves to him in faith. But what about Peter saying, if the righteous is scarcely saved? What does that mean? I mean, if you're a Christian and you understand the gospel, don't you think, well, doesn't that kind of like undermine the gospel? Like, how is it that we are scarcely saved? That kind of sounds like it's up to me and my efforts, and I know that I'm kind of like just barely going to make it. Well, don't misunderstand. Peter is not contradicting the gospel we just talked about. He's not saying that you just might barely skate into heaven as the doors are closing if you do it well on your own. No, that would be self-salvation. That would be works righteousness. That's not good news. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a message of grace. It is a message of undeserved love and acceptance that is yours not because of what you do, but because of what Christ has done. Peter knows the final words of Jesus while he hung on the cross. It is finished. Peter knows that Christ has finished it. The work of Jesus is enough. His work is sufficient to save to the uttermost all those who call upon him. What Peter means then by saying if the righteous is scarcely saved... I think, is that he is acknowledging how difficult the testing of this life is. How difficult it is to persevere in the midst of your suffering and say, God is good. 
Peter's telling us he understands the obedience of faith is sometimes extremely difficult. Jesus took upon himself the heaviest burden of our salvation, one that you could never take. He bore the condemnation that you deserved for your sins. But still, placed upon us in our call to follow Jesus is a heavy burden, isn't it? To trust him through the suffering, to hold fast our confession of faith firm to the end, even through the fiery trials that God in his love chooses to lay upon us in order that he might evaluate us. This will not be easy, the road that you are traveling, but Jesus has already accomplished the impossible part. He's already atoned for your sins. He's already covered them in his blood. All that's left for us to do is what Hebrews 10, 23 says. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So then Peter gives us this final instruction concerning the painful trials and suffering that we experience and which God uses to judge or evaluate whether we trust him. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, therefore, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, when Peter says we will suffer according to God's will, he probably has two things in mind. First, that if we suffer, it should not be because we do evil. God's will is that we should do good, not evil. Remember back in verse 15, Peter said, let none of you suffer as an evildoer. The world is going to hate us because we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. But even when the world hates us, we must do God's will, which is to say do good. Even if that means that it's going to lead to suffering at the hands of those who despise us. But I think Peter has in mind here a second idea here, which is this. And I think I've said this to you before. But it is God's will that you would suffer. It is God's will that you would suffer. Remember way back to chapter 1 when we began 1 Peter, verses 6 and 7. Peter told us that our trials would test our faith, but ultimately that they would result in praise and glory and honor on the day when Christ is revealed. And as Christians, then, it's important we understand it is God's will for us to suffer. Our suffering is not random, it's not meaningless, it's not hopeless. God ordains it in his love and in his wisdom. Not because God is mean, but because in this bent and broken world that we live in, suffering refines us and teaches us to trust him and not our own selves. And God in his sovereign glory stands over and above all of our suffering. He has a purpose for it. In God's purposes, suffering is redemptive. Like I said last week, suffering is the anvil that God uses to pound our hard hearts into the image of Jesus Christ. 
It's the scalpel of his love, tenderly carving away everything in us that rebels against him so that all that is left at the end is what is pure and holy and pleasing to him, full of trust and love for this God who loves us through Christ Jesus. So because we believe God intends good for us in our suffering, then we should suffer well. And this is where I'll bring it to a conclusion. What does it mean to suffer well? How do you suffer well? I think Peter tells us two things here in verse 19. First, that as we suffer, we would continue to trust God. That we would believe and know that God is faithful. That we would not question him or doubt him, even as we bring our anxieties to him. That we would ultimately trust him. That we would, as Peter says, entrust our souls to him. To suffer well means that we look to the cross and we remember that on the cross, God has proven his love for us. What more could he do than give his son to die in our place, to say, I love you and nothing will come between me and my love for you. So we don't let doubt or discouragement overwhelm us. We read the scriptures, which tell us page after page after page of God's enduring love for his people through every century of history. And we surround ourselves with our Christian brothers and sisters who can say, let me be for you the hope that you need when you feel there is no hope. Let me be for you encouragement and the tangible presence of God when you feel he has forsaken you. Part of suffering well is suffering with endurance and keeping the faith and not giving up. Fixing on our hearts and our minds on what we know to be true about God, that God is good and he will not abandon us. His love for us, it is a triumphant love. It cannot be turned aside. It cannot be defeated. And so we must hold fast to that truth. And then finally, the second part of suffering well is continuing to do good. Do you see what Peter says here? It can be tempting in our suffering to look around at a world and see people doing evil and think to ourselves, they get away with doing evil and they are not suffering like I am suffering. And so what profit is there for me in doing what is good when the world does evil and seems to get away with it? Since it feels like God doesn't have our back when we suffer, we might as well, we think, selfishly do whatever feels good, whatever might just alleviate the suffering. Let me turn away from the righteousness that God has called me to and let me go do this thing over here that will just make me feel better. We think God has turned away from us and so we feel we might as well turn away from him. But we are called to respond to the trials that God gives us by doing good, which is just another part of the test. Do we trust that it is better to do good? Because that, has, that is what God has told us we must do. And this is especially important in times of trial and suffering because this really tests what we believe. Are you willing to do good to honor God by doing good when it feels like God has not done good to you. That's a test of your trust for him. Are you willing to obey God 
even when it feels like he doesn't deserve your obedience because you've not received from him what feels good. And look, ultimately what we see in verse 19 is a picture of Jesus who's gone before us, isn't it? Read it again, and what do you see there? Jesus did the will of God, and it brought him great suffering, suffering beyond what you could ever even imagine. But he kept going. He kept entrusting his soul to God the Father. And whatever suffering or trial you might go through, as senseless as it might feel to you, the suffering that Jesus went through was greater still. He was literally innocent of any wrongdoing, which is not something that you can say as you suffer. Jesus was perfectly righteous. And yet, as you heard in Isaiah 53, it was the will of God to crush him, to make him a man of sorrows. And Jesus entrusted his soul to God, even as he was receiving from God the judgment that you deserve for your sin. And he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he followed that desperate cry with these words. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. To say that he felt forsaken and abandoned and yet entrust himself to God showed that Jesus was fully convinced that God was faithful in the midst of his suffering. And this should be our cry in suffering. God, I feel forsaken. And yet, into your hands, I will entrust my soul. And for Jesus, his whole life, he knew that this trial was before him, the cross was coming, that he would have to suffer judgment for our sin and be forsaken by God and be crucified. And yet, even with the shadow of that trial ahead of him, what did he do? He did good. He did good and honored the Father. His life was a life fully committed to doing good. And if you trust that God's position towards you has been good, that God is fully committed to your good, and that God is actually powerful to secure your good even in the midst of the trials that you go through because you have seen God's love proven in the cross, then you can trust in God's goodness and commit yourself to his way, even if that might mean even more suffering. So here's how you pass the test of judgment as it comes upon you in this life. Keep doing good while you entrust your soul to God. He's faithful. We're going to take communion now. Our worship team is going to come forward and they're going to lead us in some singing.